A is from Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Laura Dickerson, and I am a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. We good? Okay. Um, we, as uh, was just read, will be in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, if you want to turn there, um, but we'll start with prayer. So, dear Lord, I thank you that you are who you say you are, and that we can trust your promises that at the end of ourselves, there is more of you. Guide us now into your presence and form our hearts and our affections by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, I watched a Netflix series on Bernie Madoff. He is one of the most famous fraudsters, stealing over $170 billion in hard-earned assets. All of it came crashing down with the economic collapse of 2008, but a few years prior, some analysts started sniffing around, and they went to these portfolio managers appealing to them and saying, you have to diversify. This guy cannot be real. He's a fraud. But they said, we love the returns, and we trust Bernie. I think that gets at a core human desire that we kind of see what we want. To see. And in the book of Colossians, Paul has been telling us that there are false teachers in Colossae. You can't simply see what you want to see. So he's taken us through this book, warning us against false teaching, reestablishing the supremacy of Christ, and then reminding us who we are as believers, telling us to put to death these things and to put on these other things. We're in chapter 4, almost at the end of the book, and he commands us not to accrue more knowledge, but to continue steadfastly in prayer. How are we doing so far? Because I don't know about you, but there was a, um, there was a TV character about 10 years ago, and she proclaims, like the book, Eat, Pray, Love. She wants to go on this Eat, Pray, Love journey. She's not very religious, but immediately she corrects herself and goes, oh, what am I saying? Then I'd have to pray. And I think it gets at this difficulty that we have in taking ourselves to the Lord. So as we think about this command, continue steadfastly in prayer, if we think about what steadfastly means, it's built on the root to be strong. It means to be earnest 
have adherence be in a certain direction, to have fervor or have a firm resolution can be like being as incessant as a child. And I know some of you have children in the home right now who are constantly asking the question, why? Or when we will be there? Are we there yet? That's what our prayer life is supposed to be like. Now, I don't necessarily think any of us needed a definition of what persistence means. And if you're how I would have been there, I'm just what's starting to creep up is just this low-level guilt we think we're supposed to live with. Like, oh, no, I should do that. But, uh, what? So now I think what we need to do next is understand what is Paul meaning when he says the word prayer. Paul often prays throughout the scriptures. He asks that we may be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work, that we should increase in the knowledge of God and endurance with patience and enjoy. Still a little ethereal for me, but what do you think of when you think of prayer? I think solitude, heads bowed, um, calm, pristine, buttoned up, polite. I'm already halfway asleep by the definition I've just given you. So is this what Paul is commanding us to get better at? I don't think so. According to Tim Keller in his book on prayer, prayer is not talking past God but talking with him. It's a way to know more of God himself and unites us with him. And that means shaking off some of the pretenses that we've added and we get caught up in when we think about prayer. We have a biblical example. I think in our culture now, we have said that this is spiritual maturity. We never get too upset about anything. We never get too disappointed in anything. We're just going to ask for things, maybe not fully believe that God will do them. And that is what we're going for. We see a stark contrast in the biblical example in Psalm 22, which we spoke about a few weeks ago in Sunday school, right? Jesus references Psalm 22 on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the psalmist pours out his feelings and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But about halfway through the psalm, He shifts, he changes, and he says, Oh, Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And in this process of wrestling, of contending, of pouring out honesty, the psalmist himself is formed and changed and transformed. We see a more recent example of that in Flannery O'Connor, who was a writer. She said it this way, I want very much to succeed in the world with what I want to do. I am so discouraged about my work. Mediocrity is a hard word to apply to oneself, yet is impossible not to throw at myself. I am stupid, quite as stupid as the people I ridicule. Now here's the problem. Whether or not we have an ongoing monologue in our head similar to Flannery O'Connor's about ourselves or someone else or the world, our temptation is to end where, where I've stopped reading right now, right? It's to end there. We don't engage God at all. We don't ask what he thinks. 
We just come to our own conclusions. But she prayed them. She said, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon and that I will judge myself based by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. And that's ultimately our own struggle, right? And especially our own struggle if we end before we even take that reality to God. I think the difficulty is that often, I'm afraid to be honest with God. He's sovereign. How can I air my complaints, my frustrations, my griefs? But ultimately, that's what he wants. And the gift of prayer is that he already knows. It's quite intimidating to come before him and know that you can hide nothing. But it is a gift. And so our question this morning is, will we trust God with ourselves? With our hopes and our dreams, our fears and our disappointments? Will we trust God with ourselves? Will we accept this invitation to be more fully known by God and to know him better? Because prayer ultimately is our only gateway to who God is and our own self-knowledge. So if we are going to believe what Paul has said, that we should work on this discipline in this command of being more persistent in prayer, how do we do that? Well, first, I think we have to start slow. I'm the first to tell you I don't like to learn, I like to know. I want to play mini-golf tomorrow and beat Jordan Spieth in the Masters on Wednesday. <laughs> so, if we decide, all right, we need to pray, we're going to hunker down on our own strength and uh, self-control, tomorrow I'm going to pray for an hour. We're going to be burned out by the end of this week. I want you all to evaluate your own tendencies toward prayer and think about what a stretch would be. Right now, that might be five minutes for you. That might be 10. It might be driving and praying on the way to work instead of listening to the radio. It might be giving up social media for a week and praying during that day. It's up to what you are. But I would say during this next week, let's stretch a little in what our prayer time can look like, but also in what our ideas of what prayer can look like as well. All of us likely have different ways that we were formed and fashioned, and if we think about exercise, some of us probably swim, some of us probably walk, some of us probably run. And in our prayer lives, if we have a certain standard that we're trying to meet, we're like, man, I'd be a great runner, but I just got to walk forever, and I just got to be awake while I do it, and like, that's not going to get us anywhere either. So think about how you have been formed. Does your prayer life look better when you journal, when you paint? when you sing, when you sit in nature. Don't be afraid or think it's against the rules or outside of what prayer can be because it looks a little bit different than sitting still. God invites us to it in all different forms. But lastly, I think we have to dig in to the authenticity 
that we are invited into. Prayer can sometimes look like silence. can look like just saying, I have nothing left to give here. Or asking the Lord to intercede through his spirit on our behalf when we don't have the words. It can look like anger and tears and grief and being honest about the disappointments and the difficulties that we face as we live in an evil world, in a world that has evil for now. Ultimately, Tim Keller says that there is nothing great that is easy. And as he's going through his book on prayer, he says that he started these prayer disciplines and it took about two years to feel the effects. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so lastly, I think we can't do it alone. We need to have a buddy. We need to have someone who's going to hold us accountable and help us as we seek to learn how to pray more and better and more authentically. So that's first. We've been instructed to continue steadfastly in prayer. And Paul adds to that, being watchful. It's this idea of mental alertness. As we saw in Matthew 26, it's difficult to do even in the highest stakes of times. It doesn't really suggest anything like worry or stress or hypervigilance, but rather it's that we are supposed to know the circumstances of life, particularly those that affect the spread of the gospel in our context, because in Formed prayer is more likely to be personal, powerful, and purposeful. Should never be dull or mechanical. As part of one of my classes for seminary, we watched a reenactment of a Gentile uh, religious ritual. And it was just this chanting, this ongoing chanting. The words didn't matter. It was just repetitive. It was dull. It was mechanical. But that's not what we're called to do. We're never instructed to be uh, careless, careless in our prayers. But rather, prayer should make us feel alive. And while I thought about this, I thought, what is the biggest thing that gets in the way of my own tendency to be mentally alert in my prayer life? Sure, it's distraction, and I think that's important to mention, but ultimately I think it's cynicism. We think we already know the end, or that it won't really matter and I see that in the way that we talk about things that might be global, right? This is just the way it is. It's just our political system. It's just our economic system. We just need to be okay with how things are, and then we'll be all right. Won't be disappointed. But I also see this on a personal level. That person's addiction, it's never going to change. This is just how they are. These people are just so far from the Lord, and that's how it's going to be. We serve a pursuing God, and not only a pursuing God, but one who brings life from death. So we are called to challenge our cynicism. Ultimately, prayer is rebellion against the evil status quo of the world. We are not meant to call things okay that simply are not. So, how do we begin 
to implement this. I'm going to ask that in the next week, all of us pray for something, think of something, and pray for something that we've decided God has given up on. That we've just said, we're going to put that away. He's not doing anything. That's really hard because it's usually something that we really care about and that hurts that he hasn't answered us yet. So maybe you're not ready. Maybe you're not ready to pray for it. Maybe you could just think about it. Maybe you could just pray for the desire to engage God in that way. But Augustine's mother prayed for him as a hooligan for 17 years, and he became a giant in the faith. Zechariah and Elizabeth were given a child long after they were past childbearing age. And God is working on prayers we have long forgotten. So, Paul tells us to pray persistently, to add to that watchfulness, and then he instructs us to be thankful. We just started Daylight Savings Time, and on Instagram there's this meme that says, I don't mean to be dramatic, but the sun setting at 5 p.m. has ruined my life. And I feel that. <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed by the next several months. And I think it's a good indicator that all of us are tempted to define how we're doing by our circumstances and what they look like. And I will tell you, I am swimming in answered prayers that I have long forgotten. And always with the Lord, I'm like, what about the next thing? What about the next thing? Sometimes he gives it to me, and I'm like, not like that, though. So we know that we should be thankful. I want to tell us this is not toxic positivity, where we're just thankful for everything indiscriminately and genuinely bad things we feel like we just have to be thankful for. I'm standing in a pulpit that I could not even dream of four years ago because of my own personal convictions. And the fulfillment of this dream has meant other ones that I have longed for have gone unmet, unanswered. Thankfulness is not discounting one for the other. It's acknowledging that both are true. So we all know what we should be thankful for, Paul tells us, because the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of light. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And in response to that, Paul often tells us to remember who we once were. Frequently in the Old Testament, we see this tension as well. When often, when Israel disobeyed, it's because they forgot. This discipline of thankfulness is meant to remind us of what God has done and enable us to trust him more. Because what he has done, he will do, even if we can't see it yet. So that we'll be less likely to be lured away by the false promises of the enemy. So we're called to be thankful. And I would say, I'm challenging us all again, challenging us a lot during our time together. But for us to think about what in our lives is going well, it's going right, the prayers that God has answered us, I think those things are good to say I'm thankful for the house I live in and the things that are proximal to me. But a few weeks ago, I went all the way back to middle school 
And I said, these are choices I could have made that would have made a different life for me. These are friends I could have had or not had. These are relationships that ended. And I could see God's hand framing through all of these things that at the time, maybe I was upset or disappointed with. But even more than that, God is at work through the generations that came before us. So I've thought back to my great-grandparents, and I've been able to trace a seed of the gospel through my great-grandparents and my grandparents and my parents down to me. And when we have a perspective like that, and we grow in our thankfulness, we can remember, even when we don't, our circumstances tell us differently, that God is at work. When we get outside of the day-to-day, he's at work in the weeks, in the months, in the years, in the decades, in the generations. He is at work. So I would encourage you to spend some time in reflection. And even thank God for the prayer he didn't answer. That you got mad about at the time. Maybe you didn't talk to him for a little bit. Because now with the vision that you have and the perspective that you have, you can see that he was right all along. And lastly, I think we need to get a little bit better at celebrating when prayers actually come true. So much we want to turn the page and go, oh yes, we got it, great, and next. What's next? But marinate in all of the things that had to happen and get into place in order for this one prayer that we've been praying on for a long time or for a short time to come to fruition. Now all of these ideas, I think, are getting at expectancy right? Persistence, watchfulness, thankfulness. They're getting at this idea of expectancy. We're entering the holiday season, and a family favorite of movies is the Santa Claus with Tim Allen. Tim, Santa Claus falls off a roof. Tim Allen has to become Santa Claus, and he takes on the physical characteristics. He gains weight. He has white hair in his 30s, and he goes and he travels around the world, and he delivers all the, all the gifts. There's one holdout of unbelief in his life, and it's his wife, his ex-wife's husband, who's a psychiatrist, who thinks he's just having a psychotic episode. So you get to the end of the film, and you realize it's not really related to all his education and psychiatry. It's because when he was three, he asked for a weenie whistle, and as he summarizes, Christmas morning came, no weenie. And I think sometimes this is a little bit how I treat, at least. I won't, I won't say anything over you, but I treat prayer, right? You're expectant, and you want to dig in. And there's sometimes you've held on to something, and you know the Lord has asked you to give it to him. And you give it to him, and he, like, doesn't answer it. You're like, I just got the guts. If anything was supposed to be successful, it was this thing. What are, what are you doing? And so as we think about being more expectant in prayer, in in being bolder in prayer, in asking for things that only God can do, I'm going to tell you we're going to be met with unanswered prayers. It's a fact. So how do we trust God with the sting of unanswered prayers? It comes from our scripture reading that Mike shared this morning from Matthew 26. And we can trust him because Jesus himself was not spared the agony of unanswered prayers. And in Hebrews, when it tells us that we have a high priest 
who can empathize with all of our weaknesses, we can trust it. We can trust it. So now, Paul makes a turn. He's told us how to pray, and now he's going to specifically ask for the Colossians that they pray on his behalf to have opportunities to share the gospel. So he says this, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. This gets at the point that it is God who opens the doors for us. We are not meant to intimidate or coerce or bully or have a ongoing monologue with someone who is clearly uninterested because we feel the need to share the gospel. But it also requires a willingness on our behalf that when those opportunities arise, as they will, that we will have willing hearts to wade in to the tension. Paul adds to it. He says that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Which means that we shouldn't add flowery language. And I would go so far to say, as those who have been in, in church for a long time, we have a tendency to enjoy our Christianese. So have a reminder, when we engage those who might be outside the faith, that we simplify and speak in terms that um, are clear to those who have not been churched. So now he's instructed us to uh, pray for these opportunities, and now he's going to characterize what those opportunities should look like. In verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Walk in is really an all-encompassing term. It means what your lifestyle looks like, how you should conduct yourself. So we are supposed to walk in wisdom. He doesn't say we jump right in, we engage everybody, we never challenge anything. And he also doesn't say we isolate and we define what being a believer is and we say no one's inside our circle and then we just add things to things that, that will keep people out of the circle, right? There is a tension that we should feel because we're going to have to go to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and ask for wisdom and discernment about which times we should lean in and which times we should hold back. But he says making the most of the time. In Greek, there are two words for time. One is kairos, that's the one that's used here, and that means appointed time. The other one is chronos, it's where we get chronology or something like that. It's typically what we think of when we think of a duration of time. And in America, this is how we speak about time. We say, I'm running out of time. I don't have time. That's not the word that's used here. The word is appointed time. So we are tempted sometimes, I think, to go back to that coercion because we feel like we're running out of time. But God is urgent. He's not in a hurry. He's urgent. He's not in a hurry. And I don't know about you, but I have slapped some people in the face with the Bible verse that did not follow because I felt like I was running out of time. Right? Or I just had to in this scenario. But I'm going to say that sometimes our tendencies to lean into correction too quickly miss an opportunity for pastoral connection or emotional connection to say, oh, what did you mean by that? Because maybe I disagree with how they said it, but the, the deeper desire, I could say something too, right? I could speak to. 
Then Paul goes on and he says how we're supposed to characterize these interactions with regard to our speech. He says in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. Now, in America, we know that it's taboo to talk about religion and politics, and especially with increased polarization, there is this uh, fear of the tension, I think, of what engaging uh, someone with the gospel could look like, right? But what Paul doesn't say is we have an offensive message, so if anyone's offended with us, it's them problem. He instructs us with this because likely, at times, it might be difficult to be gracious. These things are important to us, and they certainly are important to the person that we're talking to, even if they believe differently. I think it can be divisive and tense and terse. On my end, it can be nerve-wracking. You know, you don't want your face to get hot and your heart to beat fast, and you don't know what to say. But we're called to be cautious and tactful, and we're not called to unnecessarily antagonize or alienate, or to think it's a debate. And this is where I think we've leaned in too much to the loudest opposition of of the Christian message, right? They've said, you need to have an answer. Faith is mostly a debate. And we get scared about it. We're not called to be contentious in how we communicate our faith. Proverbs 15 reminds us that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Ultimately, all of us were brought to Jesus because of his kindness, and we are called to reflect that in the way we engage others, not through confrontation and conviction, but through undeserved kindness. So, when we think about these opportunities that we'll pray for, Are we mostly thinking we're wading into an argument that we want to win? Or do we really want to understand where someone is coming from? Paul adds to that. He says that our speech should be seasoned with salt. Now, there were multiple ways that salt was used um, in this time. And it can be used as a preservative where, you know, you can say, hey, you put salt in the wound and you clean it out, and that's who we are as believers. We're supposed to go and we're supposed to tell other people how they should be. That's not what the usage is here. And I would argue we don't come to these conversations on any type of moral high ground. But rather, this idea of salt is that our speech is supposed to be lively, witty, interesting, tactful, appealing. We're not just supposed to be like this. We're not just supposed to be like this. And just say, um, one, one of my favorite commentators put it this way, Christians are not called to be irrelevant bores. We're called to leave them seasoned with grace. That conversation is so seasoned with grace that they're longing for more. That they are longing to hear more. And then he ends by saying this, so that you know how to answer each one. That means that God is at work in different people's lives in different ways. Paul does not give us a set of instructions that will work every time. Instead, the philosopher is going to engage in that discussion differently from the artist, and we have the task of discerning how we should connect with people based on who they are, 
our our answers should be individualized and personal because we share a person. I mean, we we worship a personal God. We're also not intended to muddy the waters with any personal preferences that are political or social or just just that, just preferences, right? This is not compromising the gospel, but it is proper contextualization. And the beauty is that in the church universal, all of us have hearts that speak to certain groups of people and not others, and we get to see how each of us are gifted and how each of us engage some of these different groups and how the Lord is at work. So, before we end our time together, as we think about wading into this, I want us to ask ourselves, what are we afraid of? I will tell you, we are wading into a very personal area that's challenging and that we will face rejection. The cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, and Jesus himself was rejected throughout the Gospels. We are, as I mentioned, instructed to be gracious because it may be difficult to be gracious. But I think we should work to ask questions for understanding, to continue to engage rather than have a pat answer, strip away all mystery, and really get to the question underneath the question. Because some people might come with these philosophical debating topics, but really most of us are just hurting if we can just get there. Ultimately, the gospel is a relational faith. And that, as we think about this, as we think about being rejected, as we think about engaging people who may or may not be open to it, I think we need to flex the muscle of disagreeing well and be willing to apologize. We don't have to know the answer. We can say, I don't know. But a few years ago, I went in too hard, slapped somebody in the face with the Bible verse, and I wrote her a letter later. And even if you think that you mess up, I want us to be reminded that God is pleased with our stumblings and that our testimony of who he is even extends to how we act past that interaction. And that our vulnerability and our willingness to apologize and how we said something or treated someone will speak volumes of the God we worship. So this is the life and the faith that we are called to. We are called to let go of those things that we want to cling to, not just see things as we want to see them, and to invite other people into the same relationship. So as we build this discipline of prayer, working to be more authentic, let us go into those conversations reminding other people they don't have to be buttoned up either. They can come to the Lord as they are. Let us now go to him in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are forming us as a church into more of who you are. I pray that you will give us more of yourself and that you will teach us to trust you because you can be trusted. I thank you and praise you for your presence and remind us as much as we may want certain things or circumstances that let us not stop clinging to you, even when we're disappointed, even when we're upset. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together.